Welcome to the Commercial Matters Podcast. Your show host is Amit Kapoor, owner of Mindful Contract Solutions. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal advice. Hi folks, welcome back. This is Amit Kapoor. I am a commercial consultant to major digital transformation programs. If you have joined us in episode one, I'm really pleased to see you back. And if you are a new subscriber, you're equally welcome. So in episode one, we looked at what makes ID disputes so special and so different compared to disputes in other domains. In this episode, we are going to do a deep dive. We will look at what the competing version of events tend to be from a buyer and a supplier in an IT dispute. And just to recap, the one thing we discussed in episode one was in an IT dispute in particular, both sides of the story seem equally credible. So we're going to talk about what those stories typically are. And if you are in an unfortunate position of being in an actual dispute with either your supplier or your buyer, I hope you'll find some resonance between what we say and what you're experiencing on the ground. But the purpose of the session is to then draw some learnings from what we talk about to understand what is it that you can do in your programs to avoid such versions of events occurring in the first place. Okay, so the scene is set and let's make a start. We'll first look at what are the biggest gripes that buyers have of suppliers in IT disputes. Gripe number one is program delays. And usually it goes like this. The buyer has just completed a procurement exercise, has just appointed a supplier because their estimates were fantastic and therefore their costing was great. They had the best team in the supplier presentations and everything seems to be in hand. Month one, you notice that the the suppliers started to ramp up their teams, but some roles are taking a little while to get filled. Month two, you notice that the teams that have been deployed on your site seem to be quite junior. This doesn't seem quite like the A team of the supplier as you were promised at the procurement stage. Month three, you suddenly now start experiencing issues, deliveries that are not met, promises that are not kept, and generally new change requests coming in, which seem quite unwarranted to you because you thought you'd agreed that when you signed the contract. And the accusation you have for the supplier is that you probably underballed your offer so that you could get your foot in the door and then kind of charge us through change control. Sounds familiar? So that was gripe number one, program delays. Now coming to gripe number two, one of the bear bugs that buyers have of suppliers is the quality of the product that is being delivered. And this gripe can appear itself in a number of ways. It can either be some kind of a breach of warranty claim, or it can just be that the goods you delivered are not fit for purpose, or it could be that the buyer accuses the supplier of descoping the program or certain features from the product to such an extent that the product itself is uh, pretty meaningless in that it does not generate any business benefits for the buyer. This typically happens in those programs where suppliers are incentivized to deliver an output within a time with a lot of punitive measures in place if a supplier fails to meet its deadline. What ends up happening is the supplier then starts negotiating themselves down in respect of what they are required to deliver in that period. 
And the final gripe that buyers can have of suppliers is one of misrepresentation. Quite often, buyers tend to see the supplier's best resources in their bid presentations. And what is often talked about is the supplier's investment in building their own intellectual property around certain solutions, which might be accelerators of some kind, basically productivity tools that allow the buyer's program to quicken up and deliver its output in much quicker time than if they had kind of done everything from scratch. In reality, many of these accelerators, for some reason or the other, seem not to be applicable or not to be suitable for specific buyer circumstances. And because of that, the buyer then ends up engaging the supply pretty much like a body shop. So just to sum it up, there are three kinds of accusations that buyers will have of suppliers in any IT dispute. The one is that you, the supplier, caused the delay. The second is you, the supplier, promised us a Rolls Royce and delivered us, I don't know, a cart on wheels. So that kind of sums up the kind of the buyer's saga of uh, when disputes are kind of brought to courts. Now let's look at the supplier's version of events. I mean, when things go wrong, what is it that suppliers say led them to the state of affairs in the program? Their gripe number one of the buyers is, you, the buyer, did not have the right skills and expertise to fulfill your share of the bargain to make this program a success. Effectively, you, the buyer, did not meet your obligations in time, which in turn led us to not meet our consequent obligations in time. And this is typically a defense that suppliers would make of buyers in a program delay situation. The second very common accusation that suppliers have of buyers is you, the buyer, kept raising change requests all through the program such that what we eventually had to deliver was so far away from what you initially bought us for that that added complexity to the system. And that is why the product is not as foolproof. It's not as uh, stable. It's not as good as it was initially promised. And the third accusation that suppliers can have of buyers in an IT dispute is actually the path of least resistance because they're not blaming the buyer directly, yeah, but they're instead blaming a third party. So it could be, for example, in an ERP implementation program, the systems integrator might blame the software vendor for delays that led them to a delayed state of affairs. You have some chance of preserving a relationship with the buyer if that is your accusation as a supplier. So many suppliers do pursue lines of argument on, on, on these grounds. There's always a chance that there is merit to it as well. So please don't get me wrong. So to sum it up, suppliers have predominantly three kind of core arguments in an IT dispute. The first is the buyer wasn't well-staffed or didn't have the right skills and expertise to accept our work and kind of take it forward with the business. The buyer kept changing the requirements far too frequently throughout the program that led to delays or an unfit-for-purpose software product. And the final is the program was delayed or affected because of third-party failure over which the supplier had no control. Fine. So we spent a good seven and a half minutes exploring what those typical gripes are when things go wrong in an IT dispute and what are the things buyers say versus what are the things suppliers say. 
Now we're going to be looking at the positive side. So what is it that you can do in your programs to avoid these versions of events happening in the first place? To start with, number one, and I can't stress this enough, you need a high caliber client side team right from the get-go. In fact, the client side team should be the one that you procure at the outset of the program, even before you've gone to the market looking for a systems integrator or a software provider. Your client side team works as the core of the program. Essentially, they're the ones who represent your organization to a systems integrator. Obviously, supplying a client-side team is a big part of what we do here at Mindful. So you would expect me to say good things about having a high-caliber client-side team. But here's the thing. You don't have to buy a client-side team from us, but do believe us. A client-side team is important for nipping issues in the bud that might otherwise just foster and foster, resulting in an unnecessary IT dispute. Quite often, in my experience, clients tend to underestimate the requirement for a client-side function, and they go very light in terms of an in-house team, instead preferring to outsource everything to a systems integrator. In fact, they see that as a purpose of outsourcing. My challenge to that is systems integrator are in business for delivering work, so they get paid if they have done their bit and left your client side. They don't get paid for the delivery of business benefits to your business. And a client-side team effectively works as an extended workforce of your own organization. So whether business benefits are being delivered is something that they can be tasked and gold for. However, it's very difficult to achieve that same level of commitment to your business outcomes if you simply choose to outsource everything to a systems integrator. In fact, many systems integrators would not even be willing to take the risk that comes with everything that the buyer's client-side team does. Therefore, it's not very surprising to, when you look at systems integrator contracts that buyers send with suppliers and you go to the section assumptions, dependencies, and exclusions, that list can sometimes be very substantial in terms of the kind of activities that the systems integrator is clearly declaring that they are not liable for and have no responsibility for. So these obligations sit with the buyer, and that is the kind of stuff that a buyer's client-side team is expected to deliver so that the program is a success. So that was point number one. We just emphasized in this point the importance of having a very strong client-side team, and we think 50% of all the gripes that buyers and suppliers have would go away if you just had a strong client-side team. What is the other thing that buyers can do? The second thing we would say buyers can do to avoid niggling supplier issues turning into disputes is to have a well thought through change management process. And by change management process, we don't just mean the administration of changes. Obviously, that is an administrative function that needs doing, making sure that RFCs are being drafted correctly to the right format, being delivered to the right level of SLAs, tracking when responses come back from your systems integrator and so on. So that change control function is key. But aside from that, you need a design authority board. Essentially, this is a, an overarching governance body that looks over everything that end users in your organization 
have fancied getting inside the scope of services because that's a new cool thing that they've discovered in learning more and more about the software through its development process. And the design authority then kind of arbitrates as to what might be an appropriate change to incorporate in the next release. Because with every change, you are increasing the complexity of the desired solution, notwithstanding the fact that you're also getting in a different specification at a later point in the program. So things will have to be readjusted, resources will have to be realigned. So you're bringing in complexity. And a design authority is the best arbiter between the trade-offs involved in terms of how beneficial is this new feature is to the business in comparison to the cost and the risk it brings to the program delivery. So that was point number two, have a well thought through change management and a design authority function for the program. Now point three, and this is our final point. This might be slightly counterintuitive, but do hear me out. Even though quite often parties feel very strongly about who is responsible for the delay, especially when the responsibility lies with the other side, not so much when it is with them. It is quite often a bad idea to try and exit the relationship with the supplier to find another one. And the reason for that is the kind of work that is involved in a software program, and especially in a major digital transformation program, it's knowledge intensive. So there is an obvious cost that comes with inducting a new supplier with new people who will spend time trying to understand the system. If shadowing is required, that will also mean there'll be a duplication of costs in that effort. Overall, this will set you back considerably in terms of your program timescales and therefore will also delay any business benefits that you might attribute to the program. So a third point leading on from that is be open to a program reset. I mean, I've seen far too many programs that simply linger on with the residual risk and a residual issue that keeps brewing on for months and months and months and comes to a point where it is so untenable for a supplier to turn up to work because every day they work for you, they're actually losing money, not making it. Quite often when you reach that stage in a program where the suppliers caught in liquidated damages clauses and other kinds of you know, punitive measures you've baked into the contract, it is a fertile ground for a supplier to look at a reasonable excuse to find its way out of the contract. And you don't want to be in that position. Obviously, a decision to reset the program needs to be taken with a lot of care, but quite often it will take a courageous leader to kind of make that point that a reset is necessary because quite often it's quite convenient to just say that you have a strong case and persist with it. So that was point three, be open for a program reset. So that's it, folks. That's what I had for you this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to seeing you in the next one. The easiest way to get notified is to click the subscribe button. Till next week, goodbye. That's this week's episode of the Commercial Matters Podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.